Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 10 of the Ask Mr. DNS podcast. I'm Cricket Liu, joined by my co-host, Matt Larson. Hi there. And uh, I guess we've, we've been somewhat remiss. <laughs> it's been quite a while since our, uh, since our last podcast, hasn't it? We have. I think there are probably many people out there who gave up on us. Yes, yes. I did hear from, from uh, uh, none other than David Olovich that, uh, that he was listening to our podcast, and he wondered, I forget whether he asked whether we were done <laughs> or had given up. But uh, I was I was really pleased to hear that he uh, he listens. I thought that was really flattering. Yeah. So all these people will now be surprised that another episode shows up in their RSS feed. Exactly. Exactly. But it is nice to be back. And here we are recording on Labor Day. So ask ask Mr. DNS works on Labor Day. How do you like that? That's right. No no sleep, no rest for the wicked. Yeah. No, we don't uh we don't really record during the rest of the week. <laughs> <laughs> but but on the occasional national holiday, yes, we uh we do record. All right, well, shall we get right into it? We have two questions from our mailbag that uh we thought we could stretch to fill an episode. <laughs> exactly. Um which one do you want to do you want to take first? I, I know we we chose which ones we wanted to do, but uh, which one do you think uh, would be best to go first? Uh, let's take let's take them in chronological order. So uh, I'll go ahead and read it. Okay. Uh, the first one uh, asks. Somebody says that they're confused. They were under the impression that a record in DNS could be associated with any valid IP address. However, this person has had uh, conversations with a couple of other people who say that this isn't the case, and supposedly they're telling him. Some fully qualified host names can only be linked to certain IP addresses depending on which network segment they're on. So uh, this is Alfredo Colon, and he wants to know what gives. Is that true? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I think Alfredo has every reason to be suspicious of that. Um, Definitely. <laughs> uh, certainly there's no reason uh, in DNS that you can't have... Uh, a domain name in your zone associated with any IP address. In fact, it doesn't even really have to be a valid IP address if you wanted to point it at uh, 127.0.0.6. That would be okay, right? Um, Indeed. I mean, I I like to tell people that an address record really just maps any domain name to any IP address. That's right. Yeah. Um, Now, in in the case of... uh, that, that Alfredo is talking about, I, I suppose it's possible that they could be running some software that places certain restrictions on uh, what you can do, what uh, addresses you can point a, a given domain name to. Certainly some IP address management software um, has a notion of a particular network or a list of networks that are associated with a particular zone, and when you create an A record in that zone, um, that software might say, hey, the, that A record has to point to an address on one of these associated networks. That's possible, but it's not a restriction that is um, enforced by DNS. It's being enforced by the software. And likewise, you're reminding me that, and it seems to me we've maybe even mentioned this in a previous podcast episode, that uh, from VeriSign's perspective, uh, from the perspective of the .com and .net registry, uh, a name server entry in the database and this is where the terminology is a little confusing because uh, a name server would be the thing that gets turned into an address or a quad a record Uh, in other words uh, the thing that's appearing on the right side of an ns record Mm -hmm. Uh, so a a name server or just a host if you will 
uh, in the registry, we track the list of allocated IP networks, and we only let hosts be created from actually assigned IP network blocks. Now, oh, I see. So, so if it comes out of unallocated space, as yet unallocated space, uh, they're not allowed to do that. Yes, of which there is less and less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about um, what about stuff like multicast IP addresses? Do you check for stuff like that? I believe we do. I b and, and I know that there are some things in there, like a few test networks, like 192.0.2 slash 24 mm -hmm. is a, uh, an example network, and we don't allow that. And I'm fairly certain we don't allow the RFC 1918 address space either, you know, the network 10 and the associated ones. So that would be another example of a restriction that is not at the DNS level, but at an application level running on top of DNS. Right. But it certainly sounds, from the way Alfredo describes it, like uh, his <laughs> his uh, server folks are, are, are um, sort of maligning DNS for something that DNS is, is not actually doing. I think so. I think that's probably the case. You know, this conversation is also reminding me of back in the days when we were both at HP, do you remember HP.com, the host HP.com? Yes, I do. I do. I was the one who named it. <laughs> I know you were. And, and it, 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 made, uh, it made people's heads explode because uh, what I should tell our, our legion of listeners was that there was a host uh, named HP.com, which just meant that in the DNS, uh, HP.com had an address record. And when you logged into that host, it said, the host name was hp.com and and people said but uh, what's the host name right and the answer was <laughs> well it's it's hp.com and, and people just really had a hard time with that it gave me no end of satisfaction let me tell you i'm sure that it did i'm sure that's why you named it that well you know i'll i'll tell you the story um in fact i've probably told you before uh i used to i used to run um the predecessor to hp.com which was called relay.hp.com you remember that one I do. I could probably come up with the IP address. It, that, it ended in dot two. I want to say. Yeah, I think it was fifteen dot two fifty five That's it. That's it. So I ran Relay for for a long time, and Relay was a s super important host. Relay was the primary HP.com name server, and Relay was also um, one of the main SMTP mail relays in and out of HP, and. Um, for a long time, we just had that one host serving that function, and it was so important that uh, I lobbied really hard with uh, management at corporate to get kind of a backup. It was also old hardware. I don't know if you remember this, but it was oh, an I HP 9825 originally. I was going to say an ancient 800 series thing. It was, yep, it was yep. old when I got there. Yeah, exactly. It was old, and we were always scaring up uh, memory for it and, and new disk and so on. And... and it took a really long time, a frustratingly long time, as I, as I recall, uh, to get the folks at uh, Corporate Network Services to spring for another box. And when we did uh, eventually acquire one, it was a good, fast box. But I had intended, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek, to call that second box delay.hp.com. Oh, uh, yes, I remember this story now. Yes. Now, needless to say that, uh, you know, a brand new, in those days, uh, very fast HP 9000 model 700, I think it was a 755 maybe? Yes, it sure was. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it um, might have started as a 750 and then turned into a 755. That's right. If anyone cares. <laughs> or remembers what a 750 or a 755 is. Um, but anyway, they were not 
too amused at uh, my idea of naming it delay.hp.com. So uh, I was a little taken aback. I, you know, here I was getting my wrist slapped for what I thought was a very, you know, a very amusing <laughs> idea to call it delay. So I ended up calling it hp.com. I said, well, if I can't call it delay.hp.com, I'm just going to call it hp.com. There you go. Yeah. There, there was a reason I didn't move up more quickly <laughs> <laughs> within the IT organization at HP. Yeah. So what were we talking about? Well, I think we've answered the question. All right. Well, that's good. That's good. So, yeah, I guess we have. Shall we move any on? Any host with any IP. That's the answer. Yeah. Any old IP address, according to DNS anyway, although there may be restrictions placed by other software and uh, other contexts in which you might use uh, an, an address. All right, so shall I read the second one? Sure. All right, so this comes from uh, Austin Equebulum. I hope I'm not slaughtering Austin's uh, surname too badly. And Austin says, is there a way to disable eDNS on a global scale? eDNS sounds like a useful feature, but the implementation should have considered that sometimes bind ser the, the bind servers will talk to other systems that do not understand eDNS. It's not sustainable to put in the server eDNS no statement for every non-bind server in one's network. And then he goes on to describe uh, his particular scenario. He says, uh, my DNS servers run bind 9.5.1 p3. I delegated a subdomain to somebody to someone else to manage, they are not running bind, and they've disabled recursion, and uh, they in turn delegated a sub-sub-domain to another party, and this group also doesn't run bind. He says, the problem is that if I make a query for something in the sub-sub-domain, his DNS servers get form error responses, that is format error responses back, because they're using eDNS. And the packet captures that he's seen suggest that the DNS servers for the sub-sub-domain seem to get confused for several seconds when they get the eDNS query. And uh, in one instance, their DNS servers seem to have crashed. And uh, if he manually sends a query with eDNS disabled, the query uh, is, is uh, answered in a timely manner. So he says a quick fix would be to use the server eDNS no thingy for the DNS servers of the sub-subdomain, but I don't want to do that because by definition it means that my DNS servers will then need that statement for every other non-bind DNS server in my network. It's not practical or sustainable because I look after the top-level servers. It will be a change management nightmare. It's better if I can get rid of eDNS completely from my servers. It would be really nice if there was a global option statement saying eDNS, no. Do I have to hack the bind source, or is there some neat way to disable eDNS? So the first thing that strikes me here, Matt, is that uh, Austin seems seemed to think that bind is the only thing that uh, implements eDNS. Which is definitely not the case. Yeah. You know, I think this is time for one of our Ask Mr. DNS tangents, where we push a few things on the stack to... Yeah. Go back and, and answer the question that we think the person really should have asked. Right. And, and before we even start answering the question, we probably need to describe what eDNS is. Well, that's where I was headed, yes. Yes. Okay, good. Do you want to take that? Sure, I'll start anyway. So let's set the Wayback Machine to the late 1990s. And the issue was there's only so much space in a DNS packet. This thing that we call the DNS message is how you send a DNS query 
and uh, a DNS response. It's the same uh, packet format, same message format for right. both a query and a response. Or for uh, notifies or for all sorts of other things. That's true. It gets reused for other things as well. Yeah. Dynamic updates. And this packet, this message format, has five sections, a uh, header format, which has uh, some flags in there, and it has a message ID, and uh, that's probably the most important stuff. And then there's a question section and an answer section. And then there's an authority section, which is usually where you have NS records or an SOA record. And then an additional section where you typically have address records. And, and there can certainly be other things in all those sections. And in particular, the last three sections, answer, authority, and additional, hold actual resource records. Yep. And the problem we ran into in the DNS engineering community was that we'd filled up the header. There were only a few extra bits to begin with, uh, to define new flags and things like that. And uh, it was full. There was no space to put anything else in. And so this was before my time in terms of DNS engineering. I was certainly using DNS, but not active in the protocol development community. So I don't know exactly how this all emerged, but the idea for how eDNS works is very clever. Someone had the idea that in a query, you only have typically the header and the question section filled in and the answer, authority, and additional are all empty. So what if you defined a new type of DNS record specifically for the purpose of carrying additional information in a query? Right. And this is a record that would be ephemeral. It would only exist in a query and in a response on, as it was flowing across the network. You'd never see this in a zone file because it would have no sense in that context. Right, it's like a TSIG record. TSIG's the same way, exactly. Yep. And so this is just incredibly clever. And thus, we got eDNS0, and it takes a record. The actual record type is opt, O-P-T, for option. And the only time you'll ever see one of these is if you are running a packet trace and using something like Wireshark or some tool like that, and you see this particular record, and you expand it and look at it. Or, and the or very dig. Right. I mean, you can you can have dig print uh, print a query and, and print the response and include uh, include the opt records, I believe. Yeah, I, you, you'll see them sort of nicely formatted. I guess I was saying if you wanted to see the actual actual opt record and its query on the wire detail. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And the opt record then repurposes certain fields, and I'm not going to be be able to remember off the top of my head. But is it like the um, so one of the one of the main purposes of eDNS here, I should say, one of the main things that it gets used for, is to advertise the size of a DNS message that you can accept over UDP. Right. Historically, the limit was 512 bytes, and eDNS zero allows a particular eDNS zero speaker to send a query and say, oh, I'll accept a reply that's uh, that's this big. And likewise, the recipient, when they send the reply, they'll say, oh, and I'll accept future queries that are that are this big. Right. And I want to say, is it the TTL field that's uh, repurposed to be to be that? I that, can't remember. But. Yeah, that's a that's a, a good question, and I don't I don't recall. But it is important to note that the response can be um, as large as the the largest UDP datagram, which is uh, a full 4K, which is pretty substantial. Right. So that's that's eDNS zero, and eDNS zero uh, has been around since 1999. That's the date for the uh, that that's the publication date of the eDNS zero RFC. Right, and this we should. Number I, I was totally just going to say. Me. Oh, oh, go ahead. 
I was going to say that the, the RFC number of EDNS0 uh, is completely escaping me. It was 2671, I believe. And I, I just wanted to also mention that, that the zero is, is maybe worth covering because, of course, Austin, men, uh, Austin referred to it, I believe, as just EDNS. Um, and ED, EDNS0, the zero is a version number, effectively. So these are extension mechanisms for DNS, that's what the eDNS is, and then zero is version zero. So there is, in fact, an, an eDNS one that they're that they're working on. Although I don't know that uh, I don't know that it's moving through the standards uh, the, the standard track right now. Is it? No. There's people sort of threaten uh, to roll the eDNS version number when we want to make significant changes. Uh, at one point in doing DNSSEC design, we talked about. Uh, one transition mechanism was maybe rolling the uh, or incrementing the EDNS0 version number. Instead, we ended up uh, changing the type mnemonics of the DNS records. That's when key went to DNS key and sig went to RRSig and so on. That was what we what we settled on. Right. I want to say one of the original features of EDNS1 uh, was that it would allow multiple queries potentially. I, I, the, the story I hear people tell was that uh, there was sort of some some non-controversial non-controversial features and some more controversial features, and so the drafts got split into a zero and a one. And zero happened, and one never did happen. And people threatened to bring back one, but it never really happens ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, so we've we've covered, I guess, what eDNS zero is. Um, and we, we certainly early on hinted at the fact that uh, it's not just bind name servers that support eDNS0. Certainly anything that supports anything that supports DNSSEC supports eDNS0. It's a requirement, I believe, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's a standard part of the protocol now. I mean, it is 10 years later. It's, it's a little late to be not, uh, not supporting eDNS0. Do, do you want to maybe talk about the whole formair thing and how that works? Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's important too, because of course, for for backwards compatibility, once name servers like Bind Nine began to support eDNS zero, they had to have a way to fall back. Um, you could send a query to a remote name server, and you could advertise using this opt record that you could, for example, accept a, a larger UDP-based response. But there was the possibility that that remote name server you sent the query to wouldn't know what the heck an opt record was, that it was an older name server that didn't understand EDNS0 yet. Uh, unfortunately, there, there's a certain amount of variability in the kind of, uh, kind of error you'd get back from a name server like that. Um, format error is one of those, one of those errors. Th there are a few others. You might also get, I believe, a serve fail error. Um, and, and maybe even another one. Uh, Matt, could you get a refused error? Well, who knows? I yeah, mean, <laughs> I, it, it just depends on the implementation. But um, most name servers that support eDNS0 have to be smart enough so that when they see that error response come back, they go, uh-oh, maybe I got this response because I happen to be using eDNS0. So they have a fallback mechanism where they will then repeat the query, uh, but without eDNS0 just to make sure that uh, if that remote name server doesn't support eDNS0, they can still communicate with it. Right, and then a smart implementation will cache that status. It'll remember that, oh yes, I tried to send a query to this particular remote name server with this IP, and uh, it doesn't speak eDNS0, so in the future I won't send eDNS0 queries to them. 
Exactly, exactly. And that, that cash is, uh, I don't remember if there's a particular um, particular timeout for that cash or not. In bind, I don't recall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, there is such a cash. And typically, typically that mechanism works quite well, I think. Um, I, I certainly haven't heard many tales as dire as Austin's, where some remote name server seems to have simply crashed because of an EDNS zero flagged query. Yes, this question was very surprising to me in that regard because, again, I keep saying this, but it's 10 years down the road from the EDNS0 uh, RFC's publication date, and I have, I'll have i go so far as to say I've never heard of this. I've never heard of uh, an EDNS0 query, that is, a query with one of these opt records stuck in the additional section. I've never heard of that actually crashing a name server. Yeah, um, I, and, and, I, and I know, Matt, that from your, from your uh, vantage point, at the registry, you've done some studies that show the percentage of queries that arrive at your name servers that have eDNS set, and it's a big percentage. It's a high percentage, isn't it? Yes, it's well over fifty percent. I can't can't recall exactly, but it's very high, relatively speaking. Yeah. So so seems like Austin's sort of trying to hold back the tide. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, are we ready to actually? Uh, answer Austin's real question, at least to the extent that we're going to answer it? <laughs> I think so. So I guess you and I would probably agree in saying that um, it's a bad idea to turn off eDNS. I mean, even if such a mechanism existed within the bind name server, and, and I think neither of us believes that it does. I, I took a quick look through the ARM, the administrator's reference manual, and I didn't find anything that suggested that you could turn eDNS off globally. But even if there, there were such a thing, um, you wouldn't want to use it, right? No, because there's just too much stuff that depends on it, um, especially, as you mentioned, in DNSSEC. We're just, it seems we can't go through an episode without mentioning DNSSEC, so here, here will be our brief DNSSEC diversion. But uh, DNSSEC, which is, which is coming everywhere, it seems, uh, you know, the root is going to be signed here before too long, and .com and .net are going to be signed in the next, uh, oh, I don't know, under 18 months at this point. So, you know, it's coming, and one of the features of DNSSEC is that the responses get much larger because mm -hmm. there's all this extra DNSSEC metadata to send keys and signatures over things. And it's very important that those responses be able to be sent over UDP. If you actually had to take the time to set up a TCP connection, well, because I guess I should say that the alternative to using UDP is you have to fall back to TCP. The uh, querier has to actually establish a TCP connection with the remote name server, uh, and it has to then uh, send the query and get response and then tear down that connection, and that's about five or six uh, extra packets and couple, at least a couple more round trips. And, it, not, and a lot more memory utilization on the part of the name server oh, too. Oh yes, right? that's the, and that that's the biggest problem on the from the our vantage point, my vantage point as uh, you know from the .com .net authoritative servers. The idea of keeping that much state, you know, we simply obviously we answer TCP queries and we provision to be able to answer a lot of TCP queries, but we don't want a world where a lot of TCP queries are the norm because it's just it's it's just tough, mm -hmm. and so you need to be able to, to handle large responses over UDP, and that means eDNS to be able to break that 512-byte UDP barrier that we've had historically before eDNS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, yep. So it's a, it's a bad idea to just turn off eDNS. 
um, for the sake of some remote servers, I think Austin ought to be going after the administrators of those remote servers and telling them they've, they've got servers that, uh, you know, are, are just not going to survive in the wild <laughs> if they keep acting like they're acting. Right. It's tough love. Uh-huh. That's right. That's right. I w one thing I just ran across, I just had this, um, this flash of, uh, uh, of recognition um, in the latest versions of Bind, and I don't remember when this was introduced, but, but um, Austin was pointing out that as a part of the server statement, you can turn eDNS off. And in, in some of the latest versions of Bind, um, you know, traditionally the server statement will take a single IP address as mm -hmm. an argument. And then you can um, basically describe the properties of that particular remote server. In these latest versions of Bind, you can actually use um, an, an IP address uh, prefix and a, and a prefix length. So if you really, really wanted to do what we're suggesting he shouldn't do, <laughs> he might be able to do it that way. But I don't, I don't want to point him uh, any more or. Uh, Carefully, or, or any more closely at, at what I'm what I'm describing. All right, I think yet again we've backed into the answer of a question. Right, right. So, so the upshot is, don't do it, Austin. Yes, be strong. Yeah, <laughs> hold the line. All right. Well, look at that. Two questions, and once again, we're approaching the ideal length of a podcast episode. Indeed, indeed, we are. Um, and we, we only briefly mentioned DNSSEC this time, so we won't be, uh, we won't be threatened by people, uh, people up in arms saying we ought to call it the Ask Mr. DNSSEC podcast. Well, that's good. So let's see. Uh, are you running uh, Snow Leopard? I am, as a matter of fact. Uh, I like it a lot. You know, I, one of the things that I've noticed, um, one of the most pronounced uh, improvements that I've seen in it is that... Um, the JavaScript performance is fantastic, and our new graphical user interface for the product, which I know you've you've seen uh, and which is uh, nearly done, uh, uses a ton of JavaScript. So the performance is fantastic. It's much much better under uh, the new version of Safari than under any other web browser I've seen. Now, does that come with Safari four, or do you have to have Snow Leopard to get it? Um, you know, I believe from what I've read, I haven't checked this out independently, but I believe that it's part of uh, it's part of Snow Leopard. Um, it, it is a version of, of Safari four, but it's a sixty four bit compile of uh, of Safari, which I, I would imagine is part of what makes it uh, so fast. You know, you have to go out of your way though to boot in sixty four bit mode. Did you have you read about that? Well, that's actually only true of the kernel. Right, so the kernel doesn't run in, uh, again, this is what I've read, the kernel doesn't run in 64-bit mode by, uh, by default, but apps compiled for 64-bits do. I see, okay. So, uh, yeah, that's right, you have to, you have to start it with, uh, I forget, like dash 64 or, or something like that, or, or maybe you have to hold down the 6 and the 4 or that's something. That's what you do, yeah. Something crazy like that. <laughs> that's, that's it, yeah, and because uh, I noticed that I've, I've got a Microsoft mouse driver for this mouse that I use with some extra buttons and wheels and things on it. And uh, it's a 32-bit driver. Well, I guess that's it, I suppose, because it's a driver that if the kernel was in 64-bit mode, it didn't like that driver, and that driver didn't load. So I'm temporarily running in 32-bit mode until Microsoft coughs up a 64-bit version of the driver, which they say they're going to do, believe it or not. Oh, that's great. That's great. 
Yeah, I'm. I've I've been really impressed with uh, the solidness of the the release. I've run into very few problems. I've also used the um, the built-in Cisco VPN support because Infoblox uses uh, Cisco VPN also, and that that's nice to have. Uh, I think the performance will probably turn out to be better than the Cisco client-based uh, VPN performance. And I actually did an upgrade. This is the first time that I've ever put in the disk and said, just upgrade. I usually am obsessive enough that I want to do a, a pave and reinstall. But I did that going <laughs> from Tiger to Leopard, and I did that just recently enough that I remember how awful it was. So I thought, all right, I'm just making a full backup, and I'm going to upgrade. And indeed, it's worked just fine on two systems. So Yeah, yeah. Any other, uh, anything else that you've noticed about it? I haven't, I haven't really had any other problems. I, there were a couple of programs that I... I thought about running that would have required uh, an installation of Rosetta, so I, I worked my way around them, not really wanting to use Rosetta. I guess Rosetta installs if you need it just from the Internet. It goes and grabs it if you try and run something that needs it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think similarly, uh, it's the way they manage um, print drivers, isn't it? Oh, somebody was telling me that, yeah. Yeah, so that if you um, you don't have print drivers installed unless you actually use uh, you know use a, a printer of that, that make and model, and then it'll just sort of on demand say, "Oh, hey, I'll uh, I'll go grab that driver off the internet and install it." Yep, I've I've been very happy with it. Yeah, well, good for Apple. I suppose we should wrap it up. Yeah, I guess so. Remind everyone that uh, you can always send us questions at um, mrdns at ask dash mrdns.com. So thanks everyone for listening. Please don't forget to send in your questions, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.